Well, we've got a packed show today. So many different topics we want to cover. Coming up after 1030, we're going to wade into U.S. politics. Things are starting to heat up down there. If you've uh, been paying any attention, Donald Trump, of course, is uh, still front, la- front page news every day. Sometimes not for good reasons. Sometimes, you know, for political reasons, but but always on the front page. And so we're going to be chatting with Dr. Wayne Petrosi, who is at Ryerson University. He's actually a professor emeritus there. And uh, weigh in on these uh, the situation as it looks as we head into an election year in the U.S. as well. That's coming up just after 10.30. We're continuing the conversation now. We started a couple of weeks back, a few times actually, talking about the, the the topic of medical assistance in dying in Canada, but we're going to take it a little bit of a different look at it. So we talked about the upcoming changes in legislation surrounding MAID. That's going to be taking effect in March. And that means that it will be, basically, you will be eligible if your only medical condition is mental illness. A lot of people weighing in feeling like that is a bad decision. And so we will continue to talk about that as well. Today, though, we're going to slow down and look at MAID and how it might be affecting a specific group of people, Indigenous people, in fact, Indigenous children. Megan Walker-Williams notes in a recent opinion column that she wrote for the National Post, suicide is an epidemic in Indigenous communities, but it's even worse for Indigenous kids. First Nations individuals between the ages of 15 and 24 are six times more likely to die by suicide than those that are not Indigenous. That's a stat from Megan's piece. And Megan is joining me today from Vancouver Island. Suicide is a problem that she's reported on. She knows intimately from her own personal experience, unfortunately, has been actively working for years on this and joins me now. Megan, thank you so much for taking our call this morning. It's a delight to talk to you, Evan. So I've I've read some work that you've done when it comes to medical assistance in dying. I know that MAID's intent is to be a compassionate ending for people initially whose deaths were reasonably foreseeable. Well, now that is going to change with a legislation change in March that's going to allow people with mental illness to seek MAID. You see problems with this as it relates to Indigenous people and especially Indigenous kids. Can you tell us why this is a concern for you? Uh, Evan, uh, I'm mentally ill. And at one point, when I was very down and uh, I was just recovering from my last nervous breakdown, if someone had offered me made, I probably would have taken them up on it. And and I'm very, very fortunate. I'm 60 scoop. You know what that is, sir? I sure do, yes. Oh, okay, okay. So I have support. I have financial support ever since my last breakdown from my, my dad. Um, and so when, this, when I saw that this is the direction that medical assistance in dying is going, um, I thought it through, and I thought about they're going to be offering it to people who are just mentally ill, and and then I thought, well, this is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. If someone's death is inevitable, right. and they're just suffering, then by all means, and they're suffering. If that's their choice, and they're in their right minds. But I just think it's offensive to offer death my people believe in embracing life, not embracing death. 
So, so Megan, walk us through some of the complications and potential implications made opening to those with mental illness could hold for people who are Indigenous. I'm mostly concerned about the suicide epidemic in our communities. You know that we have a, a, pro, a very serious problem with youth committing suicide. I don't know if it's the same in Saskatchewan. It is the same. British Columbia. Yes. Okay. Um, and then compounding that suicide problem is um, many of our children are in foster care, and they don't have a connection to their language and their culture. And many of the kids who are in foster care, they're being psychiatrically treated. Um, I can just see a straight line between we're going to offer it to people, to adults who are mentally ill, to sooner or later it's, they're going to normalize the idea that it's better, it's better to die than to embrace life. That's where this is going. I can see maybe not now, maybe not in five years, but I can see very clearly that this is the direction. If we're going to go in this direction... I, I also understand, and I've read, I think you've, you've written this in an article somewhere I read, that the, the word or the notice uh, of, of suicide almost conflicts with the Indigenous culture. I've been told in many Indigenous language, there's, there's a word for embracing life, but not for one embracing death. Is that correct? In my culture, Kosalish, uh, embracing death is the opposite of Snowyas. Snowyas is our life's teachings and disciplines. They're not death teachings. They're life's teachings. Snowyas. And this word is the foundation of Coast Salish culture. Respect. Respect life. Death is a formidable enemy, and we must respect death in the sense that we must be wary of it, and we must fight it as an enemy, but we should not embrace the enemy ever. We turn our back on the enemy. We're talking today with Megan Walker-Williams, a reporter, a journalist, a poet, an artist, and someone who is very interested in helping us understand some of the challenges with suicide, especially suicide pressing as an Indigenous issue in many communities that faces children in many cases. Do we know why this is, Megan? CBC, I don't, I don't really listen to CBC, to be honest, but in 2018, CBC did a report that in First Nations communities where at least half of the population spoke their language, the suicide rate was negligibly different than non-Native populations. And in communities where at least half, like if, if, if at least half of the population spoke their language, we were the same when it came to suicide rates. But in those suicide rates, in, 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 in communities where there's not that level of literacy and embracing of the culture and the language, the suicide rate is, I think, 17% higher on reserves for our young people. I mean, historically, we're just trying to get to a place at some point where our youths are not committing suicide at the rate at which they're doing and and I and, and and I've been fighting for that. I've been trying to raise our. I've been working for so many years on our language, returning our language to us. It's clear um, to me in reading the work that you've done, you have a real personal invested interest in this topic. You've studied, you've advocated about it for years. Can you help us understand what fuels that passion for you on this issue? Like I said, I'm sixty scoop, and when I came home uh, twenty nine years ago. 
28 years ago, sorry. So as a 60 scoop person, it wasn't easy. No one, no one, I mean, everyone knows about the 60 scoop now and everyone knows about the TRC and, but back then there wasn't. And, um, what was accessible to me was everyone that I spoke to, elders, the whole community said, if you want to be a part of the community, you have to learn the language. And so I did. I, I sought out teachers. I sought out elders. Um, I've tried to learn as many of the uh, languages that exist here on Tisquite, the big island we call it. So, Megan, on this topic of, of the suicide challenges that are happening in Indigenous communities, you've talked about them in your community, your home community, certainly in our province, and, and especially in the northern part of our province, it's an issue. Where does the responsibility on making change lie? Who has to fix this? We do. The homo mestimo. It has to come from us. If it doesn't come from us, it's not going to work. And what, what we believe, what, what my elders have all said over the years, is if we don't have a language, we can't have a culture. Like the French Canadians understand this. They've got their, I mean, they, they, they've got their language laws, and not that I agree with that, but the French Canadians understand how vitally important language is to saving a culture. And what First Nations have been dealing with, I, I don't agree with calling it a genocide. I do agree with calling it an attempted cultural genocide. So we, we bear the responsibility, but we need some help. Right. And in our culture, coercing people into helping you removes the honor. So we want the help to be freely given. So, Megan, here's my question for you. What what yeah. can we, the media and and governments, what can we do to help in terms of the responsibility in bringing back culture, bringing back language in a way that it changes some of these dynamics that have to do with suicide? Well, a lot of very good work is going on through the First Peoples Cultural Council. That is an organization that is government-funded, but if if there are people out there in Canada, and I, and I want to make this appeal if I could, if there are philanthropists and people who want to spend more money on bringing back Indigenous language and tackling the epidemic of suicide among our youth who care about the mental health, a young person, when they learn the language, they've got something to live for because they're going to pass it on to their children. That's why it's so important that the young people pick up the language and use it, because it gives them a sense of purpose. It gives them a sense of dignity. It gives them a sense of drive and ambition. Mm -hmm. In our culture, you know, our people have suffered, like I said, an attempted cultural genocide. Attempted. They haven't been attempting it for a while. I know they're trying to bring it back. They're trying to help. Because the money is going through the government, and especially this government, sometimes the money doesn't make it where it's supposed to go and where it will do the most help. Mm-hmm. The First Peoples Cultural Council in, in, here on Vancouver Island, they're pretty good. They're pretty good about uh, deciding where the money goes and how it should be spent. But there's other organizations, like the organization that I belong to, TETLA, that I work on, um, we don't, we don't want any money. We want people to get involved in the program of PETLA. 
roll up their sleeves and, and get active and involved in cultural language acquisition and re- reclamation. But maybe that's another conversation for another sure. day, sir. Megan Walker-Williams, my guest. So my last question, the, you know, we were just talking about bringing culture and language back to Indigenous communities. In terms of, of the suicide challenges that we're seeing, what steps do you see that should be taken to ensure Indigenous people and their children in communities are protected and understand the options that are out there? In terms of uh, alternatives, things that ways they can reach out and get help, get supports, and not um, resort to suicide, for example. How do we how do we get the message to them? How do we help them understand what supports are out there, and how do we connect them to the supports? That's a good question, Evan. Uh, stop trying to save the bottom line with medical expenses and foster care. Stop trying to pinch pennies when it comes to our youth. And if you're going to give money for suicide prevention, put it into language acquisition and language reclamation. Because that's the way back to your cult, to our culture. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for joining us today. Megan Walker Williams wrote an opinion column for the National Post on MAID and how she sees that intersecting in a negative way with Indigenous children who face a suicide challenge unlike any other for children and young adults in our country. You're listening to The Evan Bray Show on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Welcome back and thanks for joining us this morning. The education talk continues. I'm just glancing through the text line here. Some of the texts we didn't get to. Ron in Saskatoon said, you talk about a lack of investment in education. We built and opened 18 P3 schools eight years ago at nine different sites. And since then, more schools are being built and renovated which is absolutely correct. In fact, if you look at that capital investment, capital investment in the buildings that we're building, the schools and the structures and even the portables and those types of investments, um, you do see that. And I think that's where things can get tricky with investments and, and with stats. And Brian in North Portal weighs in too, saying, Evan, so there's a decrease in funding per student. That does not mean the province still isn't the highest funded in Canada. So... You know, again, when you're looking at it from a from a statistics standpoint, what's the breakdown? How much of it is going to teachers' salary and benefits, for example? How much of it is capital investment? And when you break it down, and we've got uh, Libby is working on this as we speak, one of the uh, very solid producers for the show, coming up with some with some good stats that show just where we sit uh, sit on this issue. I talked about the Fraser Institute study, which was shown that between 2012 and 2020, we actually were one of the only provinces that saw a decrease in the amount of money that was invested per student in Canada. We saw a 4% decrease in that. But, you know, is is it that our population grew quicker? You know, when you're doing it a per resident or per student, um, each one of those can be manipulated or affected, maybe is a better way to put it, by population growth, for example. So those are things that you have to to keep in mind. You know, the one thing we haven't talked about a lot is wages. So the province is, is throwing 7% out, saying this is what they're offering teachers, 7% over four years. Teachers are saying they want 2% a year over four years, which, you know, would roughly be eight, or I guess an end lift would be a little higher than that, eight, probably eight and a half, somewhere in there. 
but they also would like cost of living increase built into that. And so there's this narrative out there that the teachers are asking for. I've seen numbers of 23, 23.5. There's a whole bunch of different numbers. I don't think we know yet what cost of living will be in some years. So that's maybe a little bit of an unknown and, and maybe a reason why the province is reluctant to sign a deal with a bit basically an open check without knowing what the cost of living increases will be. So not wanting to guarantee that uh, in the collective agreement. But, you know, it, it probably, there's no doubt the Quebec Teachers Union recent agreement weighs into this as well. Uh, teachers in Quebec recently ratified a deal. This was, by the way, after they were on strike for a number of days. Teachers were off the job. They saw a big increase. Um, in fact, teachers at what they call a level six the highest increase that teachers in Quebec are going to see 24.5% over the life of the contract. So basically going up a quarter, pretty significant increase there. So does that weigh into to what's happening here? By the way, I'm even reluctant to bring this up, but very quietly yesterday in a quick unassuming story that didn't get much attention, the provincial government in Saskatchewan announced a tentative four-year contract agreement between itself and the Saskatchewan Medical Association. So physicians were able to reach a collective agreement in the province. In fact, Minister Everett Hindley said, we're pleased to have reached a tentative agreement for a fair and competitive compensation package that supports our ongoing retention and recruitment efforts. So the doctors got a deal yesterday. And the teachers are still saying, put your duds on, we're going back outside Monday, well, we don't know if it's going to be a strike. It could be restricting of services. It could, I mean, it could be a bunch of things. There's some form of, of job action that's going to be happening on Monday. We may hear today. We may hear tomorrow. We definitely have to hear by Saturday morning because there's that 48 hour clause that they're obliged to advise parents, advise students what the changes will be. So by Saturday morning, for sure, we should hear from the teachers as to what those changes will be. All right, coming up, Dr. Wayne Petrosi is going to be joining me. He's the Professor Emeritus from the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. That's now Toronto Metropolitan University. Used to be Ryerson. We're going to talk U.S. politics, and I want to get his take. Help us understand, how is Donald Trump still pushing through, still getting the votes, just won the Iowa caucus? How does this happen in the light of all of the other criminal and civil trials that he's trying to navigate right now our guest will help us unpack the u.s political situation next on 650 ckom and 980 cjme